we acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lestrician and I am here with Natalie Smadis. Hey! In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Noah Keneally. Dr. Noah Keneally is a childhood researcher and assistant professor in the Early Childhood Curriculum Studies program. Born in Newfoundland, he has worked with children for over three and a half decades. Noah has a background in the arts and in community engagement and went back to school to become an early childhood academic attending Toronto Metropolitan University and the University of Toronto. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) I'm very excited to talk to you about the subject. This is something that I feel very strongly about as well. Mm. Um, So I'm interested in hearing your opinion on things and learning about your research. So today, I think we're going to get started with talking about kind of what got you into um, early childhood academics. Great. Okay. Well, it all started a long time ago when I was a kid. Um, I uh, grew up with hippie parents who were pretty free-thinking people, and they encouraged my sister and I to think about the world. I um, really cared about animals as a kid, a lot of kids do, and uh, that led me into um, thinking about activism and and wanting to advocate for animal rights, and so I did that as a very young person, and that uh, led into a greater understanding of human rights. I like did some protesting and activism mm-hmm. and door-to-door stuff, uh, around animal rights and then human rights. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so uh, environmental activism was not a new thing, but uh, becoming a slightly more popular thing. And I got involved in that and um, started to think about the role of humans in in the world, basically. And uh, so I shifted my activism. I still love animals, but I shifted my uh, activism away from animals and started focusing more and more on humans and human rights. Uh, I got involved in like working with kids at a pretty young age. I was a children's librarian assistant Mm. at the age of 14. It was my third job. I was a babysitter and I picked raspberries and strawberries and then I (laughs) became a children's librarian assistant and I did arts and crafts with kids and um, yeah, just started working with children. And through that, through working with children, I became more and more interested and sort of like understood that some of the ideas that were circulating around kids like seen and not heard Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that they sort of belonged to their family but didn't really have a say in what was going on. I started to think about that and um, became, I guess you could call it like an ally to children and Mm -hmm. families to think about like children's role children's perspectives and uh yeah so I got involved in doing that and then I worked as a community artist and activist for about 14 years um with various 
different causes and communities, um, always sort of focusing on children and families. And I did a lot of work when I was an artist as an artist in the schools. Mm -hmm. So I would go into schools and take curriculum ideas and make some art tweaks to them and also make some connections to uh, the politics of the day Hmm. and do it in a way that was understandable to children and young people and um, yeah create art projects that way so I did Hmm. that for quite a long time and then I realized that uh, being an artist was um, I didn't have a pension and I was not going to be able to I was like kind of like not able to do what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah we <laughs> you get that <laughs> yeah so I uh what what I felt was really lacking was sustained relationships with children and young people and so I decided I'd run like programs for kids after school programs for kids I've been working with kids for at that point probably around 18 years and in a, a zillion different ways like I was a nanny or some people call me a billy because I was a, a boy being mm-hmm. a nanny mm-hmm. um, I've heard of that before yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, uh, so I worked in early child care in home care and did a lot of jobs involving children and but I couldn't sort of connect with them in a sustained way that mm-hmm. I felt like I could really like support them and and help them sort of understand their place in the world. And so I decided to go back to school and become a kindergarten teacher. And I quickly learned that becoming a kindergarten teacher wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, the education system has uh, across the country has some, you know, wrinkles in it I would say not perfect it's definitely not perfect and I was less interested in spending time in classrooms with uh like one age group of children just sort of like getting them ready for this system Mm -hmm. um and got really interested even more in asking questions with children and doing research with children. I was okay. really lucky in my undergrad that I was invited to be an RA with some of my uh, professors. So I got involved in research kind of early in my undergrad and got the bug. And uh, yeah, then I my whole sort of trajectory shifted. I didn't want to be a kindergarten teacher anymore, but I definitely wanted to support people who wanted to be kindergarten teachers mm. and, and early childhood educators and elementary school teachers, people who worked with that age group. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to understand the world from children's perspectives. And it sort of, everything sort of flowed together when that realization hit, because I realized what I could do was ask kids what they thought about the world and use the lens of, of rights to sort of support that theoretically. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's, so that's really cool. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. It, that's sort of the trajectory. That's yeah. really cool. Uh, I think we'll come back to that, but I, I want to talk about your project, um, Shaking the Movers, mm. early childhood project at McEwen. Can you talk a bit about um, 
what your role was in this project. For sure. I definitely want to preface this conversation with it's not really my project. I'm, I'm joining a project that's been going on for mm. about 15 years, oh, okay. right? So mm. Shaking the Movers started um, really out of the imagination of a senator named the Honorable Landon Pearson, who was a senator in the 90s. Um, she was known as the children's senator because she focused on children and women's place in mm. Canadian society. Okay. She was really instrumental in Canada signing on to the United Nations Convention of Children's Rights. Uh, and yeah, she was like super politically active then. And part of children's rights is trying to figure out ways to make space for children to be involved in decision-making. And uh, really not very many, this is, I'm again, thinking in the 90s, not very many countries were doing mm -hmm. things like that. And so Landon Pearson decided to try to do something about that. And she got a group of folks who were interested in supporting children and, and invested in children's rights together. And they decided to figure out a way to engage children to create a kind of platform so that children could explore children's rights. And then what they came up with could then be brought back to people who yeah. were going to be making changes and decisions, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, I joined, uh, again, as an undergrad, uh, I was looking at children's rights with some of uh, my professors at Toronto Metropolitan University and uh, a professor there in child and youth care, Dr. Tara Collins, has been involved in Shaking the Movers, working with Landon Pearson and in children's rights in Canada for a long time. And she said, you should probably come mm. and work with us. It's yeah, really yeah. great people. We want you to be involved. Nice. And so I was invited into the project then in around... 2011 or 2012 and then I that then I did my master's and I worked with Tara Collins and Dr. Aurelia DeSanto and uh, Dr. Rebecca Raby a bunch of people in Ontario who are invested in children childhood and then uh, I started doing my PhD and I did my PhD at OISE at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at University of Toronto because I didn't want to move out of Toronto at the time. Mm. And, but I was lucky. I was able to do some really good work there. And uh, when I finished my PhD and interviewed for this job and then got the job here at the, the Bachelor of Early Childhood Curriculum Studies, I was thrilled to realize <laughs> that McEwen was hosting uh, Shaking the Movers project as well. So oh. the director of the lab school here, Elm. Do you, have you folks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yes, early yeah. learning at McEwen. Yeah. Um, the director and some faculty uh, in, in our program, in the Bex program, um, had gotten involved in Shaking the Movers and brought it here. And the first sort of run was in 2019. And the basic premise of Shaking the Movers, the way that it's sort of come about is... Um, university students, which are sort of like at the way upper end of what we might consider youth, mm -hmm. the, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child talks about uh, children and youth going from like zero to 18. Oh, okay. Right? And so that's sort of the continuum of childhood. That's 
you know, that's not really true in a lot of different places. Context can like shift you into adulthood in a lot of different ways, right? So, yeah, but this is like an international treaty that's trying to balance a whole bunch of different perspectives, right? So that's that's their marker. Um, So Shaking the Movers involved university students facilitating workshops for children. So before people became teenagers, but often teenagers got involved too. Mm. Generally the target audience was like eight, nine, 10 to about 14, 15, 16. Getting young people involved in exploring a right a year, basically Mm. looking at like uh, the rights of people with disabilities, looking at indigenous people's rights, looking at the right to a safe environment, healthy environment mm-hmm. um and working with little kids is a little bit different right uh so the approach that McEwen took uh that the folks at elm and the folks in the vex program took was to engage with young children like 12 13 months mm. to like three four years old oh, okay yep and their families um and educators working with those children directly um, with early childhood education students and trying to like really get that that whole early childhood community involved in thinking about children's rights. So when I came here in 2021, uh, I just was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is happening (laughs) right right here. I can I I join? And and they said, yes, please do. And so I got involved that way. That's really cool. Um, what are some of the activities that they do with this project with mm, the, the children? Great question. So uh, when we're trying to talk about like young children's rights, we can't just sit down and be like, okay, so rights are this. Mm-hmm. That's not going to make much sense, yeah. right? So we have designed um, a, a bunch of different strategies and approaches. Uh, some of them are just watching the way that children are with each other and then thinking about them through the lens of how does this fit in with like rights thinking. Mm. Um, There's a a growing number, which is really exciting, of really beautiful picture books that engage with ideas Mm. of children's rights, which children's literature is a really, really great vehicle to talk about all kinds of ideas. And so that's another way that we can talk about children's rights with families, in a variety of different ways uh, without getting too deep into early childhood theory. Uh, it's really important for families to see what's going on mm-hmm. when, you know, they drop their children off at a, a childcare center. And it's really important for the folks who have been spending time with their kids to communicate what's been going on. Right, and yeah. So um, there's an approach called pedagogical documentation that documents the ways that children learn. Pedagogy is just talking about learning, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, thinking about, yeah, documenting how children learn. And um, folks at Elm focused in particular on how children were making decisions for themselves, how they were expressing themselves, how they were exploring their identity who Mm -hmm. they are with each other on their own and framing that from a children's rights perspective which at its foundation is about acknowledging people as people Mm -hmm. right right and um if we acknowledge young children as people not as 
people who are like some kind of larval stage of thing that is becoming a person, <laughs> mm-hmm. but as people in the present, yeah. we can acknowledge children's rights just from thinking in that way. We have to do a lot more than that, you know, to be honest, mm-hmm. to like really make children's rights a, a concrete thing. Right. But that's a really important step to be like, oh, they are people in their own right in the present. They're not just a becoming, they are a being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pedagogical documentation in this really beautiful way of like uh, paying attention really closely to what children are doing, writing it up in a really beautiful narrative, making maybe taking some pictures and then displaying mm-hmm. that for families to see when mm-hmm. they come and pick up their children is a really amazing way of modeling yeah. children's rights in, in this like pretty concrete way like here is we're making space for children to have a voice to share their perspectives to make choices mm-hmm. yeah that's an important way of doing that mm-hmm. that is very important I actually you got me thinking best job I've ever had I worked for boys and girls club in Sherwood Park and the way they taught like early childhood um, care I guess was if a kid is having a bad day you listen to them or if they're acting out, you just sit and listen with them or sit and hang out with them or do something else. Ask about what their weekend was. Like there was no form of like, you need to go sit over there. Like it's it's very, it's a very interesting approach and probably the best approach. I mean, listening is a really powerful mm-hmm. tool. Like we're doing it with each other right now, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and I think listening is often understood as like this um, – passive thing but Mm -hmm. listening is incredibly active it is a really powerful tool that we need to like engage in and it's a skill a learned skill right so it's something that we can doesn't come naturally to people something that we learn and we can get better at and I think that listening to people in a really active and responsive way is a way to acknowledge that they are people Mm -hmm. right it's a way to like make space for them and and uh yeah, if someone's having a rough time or a bad day or, you know, like big emotions or mm-hmm. something, listening is a great way to make space and say, yeah, that's okay, mm-hmm. right? Your big emotions are welcome here. I want to help support you in figuring out what they're about. Even just sitting and, mm-hmm. but actively listening, it's not just this passive thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And in the same way, like you're building trust with those, a million with percent. those kids, yeah. Um, that kind of also got me thinking too when I read that report for the shaking it's shaking movers yeah um there was photos of I want my child and then they had to answer and that most of them said to be heard yeah yeah like even when I was a kid <laughs> no hate to anyone who raised me but <laughs> like that was I I always felt that way in class in school at daycare babysitting like no one ever took the time to just kind of like listen to what I wanted or what I was feeling. And it was just kind of like, oh, you're fine. Or just go do something else. Like it's just the shift is it's really nice to see. Yeah. I mean, fingers crossed. We're in a particular political moment right now around those kinds of things, acknowledging people as human, listening to them. Um, yeah, but there is a shift hopefully Mm -hmm. happening. Um, there, and we, when we look at history, we can understand why these attitudes around children and childhood have existed. When we look at the history of 
psychology, the understanding of what it means like to have a mind and be a person, those philosophical ideas come out of a particular space mm-hmm. developed by particular people um, with particular biases and particular understandings about what is valuable in the world. Um, mostly like the Eurocentric mm-hmm. basis of that, those philosophies, that those theories um, echo out into everything, right? It maybe happened a long time ago, but we're feeling it consistently in the, the past shapes the present mm-hmm. and is mm-hmm. in present in the present, right? So, um, yeah, mo- that Eurocentric perspective was developed mostly by white men, people who look like me, <laughs> right? And devalued people who didn't look like me. So uh, women and children, people of color, indigenous people, people with disabilities, people of all different experiences, um, you know, didn't get a say in shaping those mm-hmm. theories and those philosophies so much. Right. Uh, and so it's not too surprising that those people are like left out mm-hmm. of that kind of thinking. Yeah. So children have been left out of political thinking. Right. Women have been left out of political thinking. Oftentimes women and children are really grouped mm. together when we're analyzing that kind of stuff because they have been marginalized in really similar ways. And uh, yet there is a shift. There has been like a theoretical change Um but the idea that children belong to their families instead of belonging as part of their families, it, like that language is really fraught, I think, mm. with meaning, right? Belonging to objects belong, right? Um, subjects do things with. Right, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Children are often considered objects, right? Because of this idea that they are not yet people. They're mm. growing into people. Mm. So I was really curious about how uh, children might understand children's rights or how we might make children's rights understandable and concrete in children's lives. And mm. I'm a relational sociologist. So through my the trajectory of my learning took me to like thinking about societies and thinking about how relationships are really central to how people fit into and shape societies. And uh, so there's a a group of people who are thinking about, well, what if we take a relational approach, centralizing relationship to children's rights? What if we thought about children's rights as ways of behaving in relationship with children and with other adults and children to children? So this relational approach thinks of like instead of children's rights as being these objects, these things that are bestowed on us because we are people, um, a relational approach talks about children's rights as, as ways of being and doing with each other. Mm. So they're, they're enactable. Um, and so th- it's really exciting to me <laughs> to think about that. Like, oh, if children's rights become something that I can do, with children what does that look like when you talked about listening that is a primary tool Mm. I think so the more we can listen in an active way the more we can acknowledge the personhood of children then that helps us to like 
make space for their voices, to engage them yeah. in decision making, to make sure that they are like safe and secure mm-hmm. and have what they need to thrive and survive, to um, uh, do our best to make space for their identities. Yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday. We hear all the time, like, protect the children, yeah. protect the children, but it's used in such a poor way yeah. that it's not actually protecting the children. When have anyone asked a child what you feel comfortable with? And, like, it doesn't even have to be a young child. Like you said, it's from, like, infant all the way till 18. 18-year-olds, they have a pretty good obviously not the best grasp on on the world but they some they them, know enough right? yeah. yeah and some of them have been adults since they were like 16 15 mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah it's very important that we are talking about this um what do you think some of the ways people who work with children or even like the general public can take into account children's rights great question <laughs> um okay so i think something that's really important to understand is that like my rights don't take rights away from anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, rights are not a finite resource. They're the way that I under- imagine them is that they're not an object, a thing at all. They're a way of being with each other, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. an infinite resource. Mm. I mean, unless we're really, really tired or like <laughs> hungry or whatever, right? Like, but the principle of the best interest of the child is a is a really powerful thing it's like let's operate so that all children can have the best access to opportunities in the world but who gets to determine that who gets to say what is best Mm -hmm. so that's why like the best interest of the child is really needs to be accompanied by listening to children's perspectives yeah right so that is a necessary thing we can't just pick and choose rights And we can't just pick and choose the rights of a particular group of people. Mm. All rights rely on everybody else having rights. So for adults to have rights, children Mm. need rights. So I think that there's like a fundamental misunderstanding about rights that like if we give in air quotes for the (laughs) listeners, if we give children rights, then adults lose authority. Mm. And that is not what rights are about. Rights are about negotiating with all actors involved in coming to consensus about the best possible outcome for everybody. Mm. My work has focused primarily on the human actors in, in the world, but there are more and more people talking about the rights of non-human actors what rights does the land have what rights do elements of the environment Mm. have what rights do rivers have and trees have interesting thinking about because they are actors involved in a particular context yeah i guess so (laughs) do we do we make space for their perspectives as well whether they have perspectives or not do we consider we can imagine we might not be able to like plug into a river and say hey tell me <laughs> tell me what you think about this but we might be able to think broadly about the consequences of the actions that we might take and how yeah. that might influence mm-hmm. a river right mm. um I'm just like at the beginning stages of this mm-hmm. my background was an environmental activism but um 
I'm just starting to think about how childhood and climate justice intersect. One like immediate thing is that children are being born now and are not being consulted about decisions that like severely affect mm -hmm. the climate. Um, but that's thinking about the future. The future is important when we're talking about childhood, but I also think that the now is really important, Almost the present. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so like even people who don't have children, I don't have children myself. Um, I am no, I know <laughs> that I am going to benefit from children in childcare at every stage of my life. Yeah. Because those children grow up to contribute to society, but those children contribute to society as children in the moment, in the yeah. now, too. That's the kind of society I want to live in where everybody is acknowledged and everyone is yeah. understood mm -hmm. that they are contributing in really big ways yeah. to make this texture of mm -hmm. society, right? This like vibrant, alive, inspiring thing of mm -hmm. people working together to like live. It takes a village. It yeah. fully <laughs> does, right? That is not, yeah. that is not just a cliche mm -hmm. and it, and children affect a whole village yeah. also. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And if we're thinking about people's place in the environment, in that sort of broader society, if we're thinking of like in, including the environment or environmental elements as actors mm -hmm. in our societies, thinking about just and equitable ways of um, being with children and, and engaging with children and engaging with the environment, mm -hmm. um, I think can go a long way to, I guess, repair a pretty significant disconnect that I think we can see in society of like humans feeling really separate from their environment mm. when in, in literal scientific fact, <laughs> we are profoundly woven into our environmental context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, everybody on the planet breathes the same atmosphere. We all rely on the same drinking water. And this is at a global scale, yeah. right? Um, the choices that we make around climate and environmental justice right now in this moment affect everybody. So, you know, the in, intense wildfires that we experienced this summer had a profound effect on the, the world. We heard about it. Borders have nothing to do with this, right? People in New York were complaining about mm -hmm. the Canadian smoke, right? <laughs> yeah. um, kids are not allowed outside when the smoke is really, really intense in the air. Yeah. Um, families make different choices about what to do, how to engage during the summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know, I don't have any statistics on it, but I think probably a lot fewer people were camping mm -hmm. this summer. Yeah, yeah. A lot fewer families were taking their kids to connect with nature because of the smoke and the wildfires. And those, there are direct correlations to choices that have been made in the past and are being made now. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. You got to take your kid out to enjoy nature so they respect it sort of thing, yeah. I think it does a lot. I was just hiking in Kananaskis uh, over the weekend and, uh, you know, it like, does something to you to mm -hmm. be in it nature. Does, yeah. You walk up the side of a mountain 
and I like we're so lucky that we have not just the mountains, but so so much of the prairies, so much access to so many different ecosystems here, mm -hmm. right? Like what an amazing way to learn about difference in the world. True, and and yeah. how like a lot of the world is not developed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of the world is touched by the effects of development, but there's a lot of wilderness, particularly mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. you know? So how lucky to like mm -hmm. be connected to a place in the world. It's education through exploration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exploration is a really important mm -hmm. way to learn about the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to have to go into, I really want to talk about the project tracing trajectories. Mm. What exactly is this project? Okay. So the bachelor of early childhood curriculum studies is a almost brand new degree program, even though it has been a diploma program at McEwen mm. for a really, really long time. Um, it became a degree program uh, and we graduated our first fourth year cohort in 2022. And I was really curious about what those educators were going to do out mm. in the field. <laughs> the field of early childhood is in flux right now in Canada. The federal government invested $3.8 billion in creating a national child care system. And each province has agreed to that in a variety of different ways. And like historically, child care has been like this real patchwork is one way that we've, we've described it. Um, like some people being able to access it and other mm -hmm. people not being able mm -hmm. to. And like people with like master's degrees working as early childhood educators and um, people with, in Alberta, a 50-hour online course being able to work mm -hmm. as early mm -hmm. childhood educators. Um, so a variety of levels of education. Yeah. Um, and so the Bex program was developed as um, – a way to support that the field in this moment of flux with people who had a higher level of education and who could potentially um, support the field in this transition. Mm. And so I was really interested, and, and my colleague, Dr. Nancy Thomas, was also really interested in uh, like how people were moving out of our program into the field and what they were doing, yeah. how they were supporting the field. And um, so we decided to trace what they were doing and involve <laughs> the first graduating court was 19 people and we knew them all and so we yeah. were like hey do you want to talk to us about this and 17 out of the 19 of them were like we would love to and I'm sure the other two would too but just like the lives are mm, busy yeah, right <laughs> the level of engagement in that cohort has been incredible so last year we got together with them over the course of four different times over the year. We got some funding from the Faculty of Health and Community Studies Supplementary Fund to support us, which was really, really nice. And um, we, yeah, talked about it. We met with them and said, what are you folks doing? And they were all like doing amazing things. Some of them Aww. were like, they had these great titles, pedagogical navigator or, <laughs> you know, like these really yeah. so incredible supportive cool. roles out in the field. And the second focus group, we had asked them to sort of bring stories about where they were working and what they were doing mm -hmm. and the choices that they were making and talk about it with 
the rest of the group. And the cohort just sort of kind of took control of the focus group. <laughs> and Nancy and I sort of just backed off and watched mm -hmm. as this group sort of galvanized itself into the way we talk about it is that they um, were a community of learners and they moved into a community mm -hmm. of practice. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean that they're not learning anymore, but yeah. they are like in, in embodying the learning in a, in a different way. And so we got really excited about watching them take on these, this like authority in, in the research. Um, yeah. And so we're hopefully going to continue that with the um, next cohort to see the differences and, and to have the first cohort, cohort 2022 support cohort 2023. Mm. And in that way, like sort of develop their research skills even further. Yeah. We really consider the people who join this project as co-researchers because, um, yeah, we are all creating the research together. And, uh, yeah, it's, so we're really excited. We're, like, working on developing the project further. Cool. But, yeah, that just watching um, folks who really identified as learners shift into this position of, like, we are practitioners now. Um, was really lovely. And one of the ways that it was happening was that they had come together and could see and work with each other outside of, even though it was happening here, but outside of the <laughs> yeah. classroom space, they were now like practitioners and doing that. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Oh my gosh. I think just, yeah, to reemphasize how important listening is, mm -hmm. not just with children, but with everybody. And that it's a learned skill. And I think it's a really important skill for everyone to learn. doesn't matter if you're working with kids or with other adults or with the elderly or with animals or with trees or with machines. Like listening to ourselves, listening to each other, I think is a really important mm -hmm. research tool, yeah. actually. Active listening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, you kind of just gave a little bit of advice, but do you have any other advice for our listeners or oh, academics or yes. students? Yeah, I totally do. I think um, students often come to me. I've been teaching for a while now. I taught in Ontario as a sessional instructor before mm. coming here. So, uh, And I've taught research in a variety of different ways. And students often come um, with a lot of trepidation to research with a lot of fear mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I just want to I guess reassure <laughs> students <laughs> and anybody who's interested like we research all the time every time we ask a question we are researching every time we google something we're researching um researching is this like active but very embodied process of like being curious about something and then going after trying to figure it out um, in academia we do it in in a variety of of formalized ways but I think um, being a person <laughs> uh, you're gonna research if you're a person it's a very I would say to be human focused for a second it's a very human trait mm -hmm. I think other beings other entities and other animals that even do research mm -hmm. in different ways. But I think it's a, like a really particular thing that, that is natural 
again, <laughs> quotation marks, that we do. Mm-hmm. So uh, not to be afraid of it and and learning those formal processes about how to research in an academic context is a learning process and um, you don't have to be afraid of it. it and it can lead to some really exciting things. That's what I've been learning on this podcast, <laughs> listening to everybody's interesting lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I'm smarter. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. What a great thing. Well, awesome. Thank you. That was a great conversation. I was very happy to talk about that today. It was really nice to talk with both of you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast, brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McCune University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logician and Natalie Smattis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smattis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Logician. And our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.